we might be able to come to know you uh, through it. Lord, we pray that your spirit would teach and guide and direct us uh, today as we uh, submit our hearts to uh, its pages. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus, the work on the cross and in resurrection freed us from the bondage that we once had to sin and are now able to be changed and transformed by the work of uh, your Spirit. It's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Again, turn to Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Again, Spirit, we ask that you would add upon this word to our hearts. So a few things before we dive into the actual text This, in a lot of ways, is um, not not really the conclusion, but kind of the the end thought of a a, a singular thought that we started, that Paul started back in chapter 14, verse 1. I'll give you my evidence for that. In, In 14, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, but you don't have to. It says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. And then here in chapter 15, verse 7, it says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So we have this kind of literary end cap, bookend, if you will, for Paul in this particular topic. Well, what is the topic? The topic is let's stop fighting amongst ourselves over opinions. Right, verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, but not to quarrel over opinions. Opinions. It's important that we know that when Paul is talking about this, he's not talking about morality. He's talking, again, about opinions. Now, this might be a little bit more difficult for us because what Paul then does is he uses examples from his day that, were, would, that everybody would have understood to be opinions. Just so you know, I'm going to say opinions a few more times just so that we know what we're talking about. Today we look back at these and we go, okay, I don't, I don't understand why is he talking about this. Because these are issues that are relatively settled for us in the 21st century church. But in the first century, when Paul's writing to the people in Rome, to the churches in Rome, these issues were not settled. 
these things were, were very much a part of their regular conversation. What happened in, in Rome during, during Emperor I think Claudius's reign is, is the, the Jews were starting to get a little bit restless. And eventually, in, in the year 70, they rise up, or a little bit before the year 70, they rise up against Rome, and Rome says, uh-uh, and they crush them, and they destroy Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple. That's in 70 AD. So this is in the late 50s when, when this, what, what I'm about to say, starts to happen. So about 20 years earlier, 15, 20 years earlier. Emperor Claudius, he's getting a little bit annoyed with the Jewish people in, in Rome, and he finally says, enough is enough. Everybody's banished. Get out of here. If you're Jewish, you can't be in Rome because you're causing too much causing too much turmoil. Instead of killing you all, I'll just send you away. And so for five years, the church in Rome was, was only Gentiles. It's like the only church in all of the world that would have been exclusively Gentiles. And so for five years, they lived their lives as without any influence from the, from the Jewish believers. And then eventually the Jews are allowed to return to Rome and they come back in and they now see this church that is eating meat and is, is worshiping God on, on whatever day of the week. And they're like, okay, what? this doesn't seem right. We're not supposed to be worshiping pagan gods because they looked at their history, which is, by the way, for us, the Old Testament. They looked at all these different times when the people of Israel worshiped pagan gods. And so they're looking at this, the meat, and I said this a couple weeks ago, that that the only way you could eat meat in the ancient world, except for in Jerusalem, was to eat meat that had first been sacrificed to a god in the temple of whatever city that you were in. And so the Jewish people, when they come back, they're like, we're not sure if this is right. We're all the Gentile people who have been there for five years without the Jewish people. They're like, it's, it's fine. And so then there's this, this tension. But it's a tension that is very real and very now. Now, now here's the next question. Does anybody think that it is biblically wrong to eat meat. Nobody, nobody raise your hands. Because this issue, this issue has been settled for us. It's not an issue that presses on us today. We're not, we're not fighting another church down the road that believes something different than us in relation to eating meat or being vegetarians. What about what day of the week do we celebrate? What day of the week do we worship God on? What day of the week do we esteem to be important enough to set aside for the worship of God? Most of us would say, well, at least Sunday. Now, now, there's still some debate. Should we also worship God on Wednesdays? Is Wednesday night a, a really important day? If, if you're not worshiping God on Wednesday, are you, are you really that serious about Christ? Or, you know, so we still have some debate over this, but relatively speaking, not really. So in the first half of chapter 14, the people in Rome, they would have completely understood that what Paul is talking about are, 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 are issues of opinion. They're issues not of Scripture, they're not of morality. They're not of the Ten Commandments. They're of, okay, how do we apply truth to these particular situations? And so, so we have to remind ourselves again and again and again, what Paul is talking about is not morality. So we can send all of those things away. We are never tolerant of, of, of sin. We should always be very serious when it comes to sin. We should always constantly be speaking against sin. But matters of opinion... Paul says, let's stop fighting about those. Now, I know that there's differing opinions on what constitutes sin, and that's a different subject altogether. In the first half of 14, he, he talks about, let's stop fighting. After all, Jesus' death in sacrifice is bigger than food 
in what day of the week you worship on, is what Paul said. He says he, he is the Lord of both the living and the dead. These are much more important issues. There are many more important issues, issues that we can and should be serious about. But on issues of if you're a vegetarian or if you like to eat meat, these things we shouldn't divide about. And then in the second half of 14, he, he moves a step forward. He says, let's stop fighting. Well, one of the ways that we fight, Paul indicates to us, is that we pass judgment and we create stumbling blocks. Well, what is a stumbling block? A stumbling block, in my opinion, is something that we purpose to do, or, or maybe if we don't do it consciously, we're doing it subconsciously, we purpose to cause turmoil in the life of somebody else. And so last week I said, let's, let's use an, an illustration that we maybe relate more with. Let's talk about alcohol. We talked about alcohol and I said that a stumbling block for somebody who, who doesn't believe that we should or have the right to drink alcohol might be that we have a party. If I think we can drink alcohol, we have a party and, and what is, what do we serve? We drink some, we drink some beer and we invite the people we know don't really like drink beer or feel that it's wrong to drink beer. That's a stumbling block. It's, it's, it's intent. There's a purpose behind it. Paul says, let's not do this. I'm not going to get any further into that. If you want to know, you can listen to our sermon from last week. And then in 15, he continues. He says, okay, we should stop quarreling. We should stop putting stumbling blocks. Now what should we do? What should we do? What should our actions be? Paul tells us in the very first verse. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We are just to stop fighting amongst ourselves and we are to stop putting stumbling blocks in front of our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus over opinions. And we should also bear with the failings. Now, I'm going to take some serious issue with that word in the ESV. Failings is wrong. ESV translators are very good. In this case, they get it wrong. Now, before I, before I talk about that, let's, let's, let's think about something else first. When Paul talks about, in this verse, the strong, it mirrors what we saw in verse 14, uh, for, or chapter 14, verse 1, and it says, as for, as for the one who is, is weak. And we know those words, and I think those are good translations from the ESV translators, strong and weak. They're opposites. One person is, has the ability to do something and the other person doesn't have the ability to do something strong and weak. We understand this. But when Paul brings this up, it's most likely Paul is using the terminology that he heard from the Romans who instigate this letter being sent. So none of the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament are just because. He's not just writing because. He writes for a purpose. For example, Philemon, the book of Philemon, a little short book, one of, Paul's, one of Paul's letters, he writes to an individual named Philemon, who was a slave owner, and slavery is completely different in the ancient world than it, is now, than it was in America, but that's a different subject. And he writes about a man named Onesimus, who was at one point Philemon's slave, who ran away and then became a Christian and now wanted to return to Philemon. And Paul writes to him, he says, hey, return him back, bring him back, but not just as a, not just as your slave, but as but as a brother in Christ, right? He's making this massive, huge statement about slavery. We're not talking about Philemon, but but he writes for a purpose. 
He goes, here is an issue that I need to address. In First and Second Corinthians, Paul likely receives a messenger, and then he responds to what the messenger says in First Corinthians. And then he receives a letter back, and then he responds in a missing letter, and then he receives another letter back, and then he responds to that in what we have and we call Second Corinthians. He's always, he's always got something. He's always responding. To in Rome, they probably sent him a messenger, and Paul is responding. What is the gospel? How does this apply? This is what we're seeing in, in chapters 12 to 16. And it's likely that Paul is using the term weak because the Romans use the term weak. What we need to know is that when Paul says this, he means in no way, shape, or form that the weak are less Christian. That's not what he's saying. And he's also not saying that the weak are more sinful. What he is rather saying is that there is a, a level of freedom that happens because of the work of Christ in our lives and subsequently because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Right, Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah, says that, that the, the Word of God will be written upon our hearts in, in the future, in the, in the time that we now live. That's the Spirit of God dwelling in us. So we no longer need regulatory commandments that guard us from going down wrong paths. So those are now gone. We have now a freedom in Christ because the Spirit dwells in us. We don't have to, by definition, we don't, we don't have to set up regulations. We can, and sometimes it's the right thing to do. But we don't have to. What Paul is referring to when he says the weak are those people who still think that they need those barriers, who, who aren't yet built up in strength in the Holy Spirit so that they can encounter situations that might be potentially bad, but rather, but, but rather relying on the Spirit, they have kind of a, a, a hindrance to those things. They're afraid of those things. Whereas the strong can go and do things where they know, okay, I can eat meat that was once sacrificed to a pagan god without worshiping a pagan god. I know that the Spirit of God dwells in me so strongly that I don't have to worship a pagan god in order to eat meat that was first sacrificed to a pagan god. After all, they're not real, which Paul says in first. So that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the weak and the strong. Again, it's not about it's not about better Christians and lesser Christians. It's not about you know strong Christians and wimpy Christians. It's not what he's talking about. He's not making in any in any statement in any way a statement about the about the magnitude of their faith. That's kind of a silly, wrong way to think about faith. But what Paul does in fourteen is he uses the word weak. And then in 15, he uses the opposite word, strong. 15 verse 1, who are, who, we who are strong. And by, way, by the way, what this, what this then implies to us is that there is, in fact, right thought. I, I hope this is very important. This is very important that we get this. Because in our present society, our, our culture is waging a war against ultimate truth. There is no such thing as ultimately right or ultimate truth. That's, that's being attacked currently. It was being attacked then as well. Paul says on multiple occasions, both in the book of Romans and in other places in his writings, 
that it is completely fine and you do not have to have a barrier to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He, he makes a definitive statement that there is an ultimate truth. You can eat meat. And so he refers here to the strong as those who recognize this. And, and, and just so we are clear, when Paul says this, he's saying, yes, there is such a thing as being ultimately right. But just because you're ultimately right doesn't mean that you're right ultimately. We are not always right, even if we think we are right. Or even if we, maybe better put, know that we are right. Paul says in Corinthians, he says, he, he, again, he's quoting the Corinthians because they say, they say this to Paul. They say, hey, all things are lawful. And Paul goes, yeah, all things are lawful, but not all things are good. We can know the truth and be definitive in our knowledge of the truth. But just because we know that it's true doesn't mean living it out is the right thing. So he says, we who are strong, we who understand this, have an obligation. What is that? An obligation, a, a responsibility. We, we should, and, and I think even, we must bear with the what? The failings? Again, this is wrong. I, I, again, I have a great respect for the, for the ESV translators, but failings isn't right. Because what does failings immediately put into your minds? I think it puts into your minds sin. That's not right. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not the word he uses. He uses the same word that he used in verse 14, chapter 1. He uses the same root word for weak. He says, we who are strong have an obligation, a responsibility to bear with the weaknesses of the, and we, we translate it as weak because it's the only word that really makes sense, of the not strong is the literal Greek word. It's strong, the word strong. It's the same word that we see earlier on with the negation in front of it, not strong. We who are strong are to bear with the, the weaknesses, not the sins, the weaknesses of the not strong. Why? Because it makes me feel better. Right? Wrong. It's not at all true. Paul says, and in fact, Paul tells us, and not to please ourselves which I find really a silly thing to say because bearing with somebody that you know is wrong is not easy. And in very few situations does it make you happy looking at a situation, looking at somebody and, and knowing. Like, like There are times as a Christian, there are times as a person who gets the opportunity to study the Bible, you know, Throughout the week, and I, you know, I look at something, and I go, "This is what the passage says. It's plain, it's simple." And then there's a bunch of people who disagree. You go, "Why don't you see this?" Why, what, right? It's not, it's not about my happiness in being the strong person. Yeah, I know that I'm right in this issue, but it, but it doesn't matter that I know that I'm right in this issue. I shouldn't be seeking my own glory. It's the same thing he says back just a few verses in 22 of 14. He says, blessed is the one who is, has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Blessed is the man who it doesn't matter whether he's right or wrong. Right? Isn't that how we live most of our lives? Just constantly trying to get one up on everybody else around us? 
I'm a prideful person. You are prideful people. I know that I'm not the only person in this room who really likes knowing that he's right. And I know that I'm right a lot. You're welcome. Oh. Right? We know that, we, we, we know that we're right. Oh, it just makes us feel so good to prove it. And proving it to everybody who is weak and insufficient and inferior to me. I hope that none of us feel that way. I hope that none of us live our lives with that mentality. But this is the mentality that Paul is addressing. And a, a mentality of superiority. I think it's almost an ironic twist that Paul uses the word strong here. You think you're strong. Now let's see how strong you are whenever you're willing to, to bear with the weakness of those who are weak. Are you really strong? Any of us aren't. Not for my pleasure, not, not to please ourselves. He goes on, verse 2, let, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. What he's, what he's referring to here is he's, he says, allow your, allow your neighbor, allow your brother or sister in Christ, who, by the way, is the, is the weak person, to win. So if we use the example we used last week, if we use the example of, 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 of drinking alcohol, if I think, oh, Scripture tells me that I can drink alcohol. After all, Jesus brought 120 gallons of wine to a wedding. I can drink alcohol. Paul tells Timothy that he, he should drink a, little, drink a little wine with his meals to help his stomach. We can drink alcohol, right? And so I go to a party, and what do I do? when the person that I know struggles with, with alcohol for whatever reason, what do I do whenever I bring a bottle of wine to that person's house? It's a stumbling block. Paul says, no, don't do that. Instead, please the other person who probably knows that you differ in opinion than they do. Go, go live your life out with them like it doesn't actually matter. Because, by the way, it doesn't. If I take one afternoon to sacrifice my rights, my freedoms, to please my neighbor, to please my brother or sister in Christ, why? For their good. But it, did you notice that it doesn't end there? The verse isn't, there's no period at the end of that word good. It goes on and it says to build him up. Now, this is where it gets good. Right? Strong people, right? You don't need to raise your hands. Just pretend like every one of you is raising your hand. Because it probably at some point you all think at some level you're one of the strong ones. So everybody in the room, listen up. Isn't it, isn't it silly how we are so, so arrogant and so high on ourselves that we think that our input will change everybody around us? Paul taught us a couple weeks ago, I think a couple weeks ago, that the only person that you have the ability to change is yourself. Period. End of story. And all of you, I, maybe not all of you, some of you, I hope one of you thought to yourself, but Ryan, every single week, you get up in front of us and you tell us what to think. I sure hope not. I sure hope that's not what I'm doing. Because if it is, man, I'm a failure. Because it's not my responsibility, nor is it my ability to change anything about any of you. My role as a pastor, my role as a preacher should never be tell you what to think. 
It should always be, show you the Bible. Always. And if it's never thought that, please, I beg you, as my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, whack me on the head. And I'm not kidding. Paul says, Paul says look, you presume, you think, you think for a second that when you see that weak brother, you're the person that's going to be able to change their weakness. Pish posh. You have no ability to change. And in fact, until you shut your mouths, that person may never change. Paul says it's actually in your silence. It's actually whenever you allow yourself to, to not rule over that other person, that change and building up can happen. Now, I want to make this very clear. Paul is not telling us not to have conversations. The whole of Scripture teaches us we should communicate. But communication is not a monologue. It's always a dialogue. Many of us don't know how to listen, and we should exercise that that skill set more often. They have a very hard time listening, and you have a very hard time listening. It's, it's built into our culture not to listen. The Scriptures teach us to communicate, but in this situation, Paul says, in fact, what you probably should do first and foremost is, is, is actually start to be quiet. Be strong enough to be quiet. Why? Because you're not the one who changes. You're not the one who does it. You're not the convincing argument. I may come up here and, and speak to you, but I am not the one who changes you. I, at best, am an instrument of the Holy Spirit. Most of the time, I'm not even that because I'm foolish. Paul says, Paul says hey, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then he goes on this kind of un unusual little turn. He says, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. It's a quote from Psalms, I think, 69.9. It's not actually written by Jesus because it's from the Old Testament, but it's credited to Jesus as, as a prophetic statement into the future. And there's a whole bunch of things that I'm not going to get into because I don't have time. Essentially what Paul's doing here is he's making a connection. Jesus went to the cross because every single person in the world at that moment was wrong. Everyone, every person on earth at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion was wrong. They were weak and they didn't understand what God was doing. And Jesus took the reproach upon himself. And died for us. And then what does Paul do? Paul then takes this picture. He says, look, Scripture has spoke about, about Jesus. About a sacrifice. About all the things that we talked about in Romans 1-11. through 11, About the fact that we're sinners. We're in desperate need of salvation. We can't save ourselves. But Jesus can. Jesus does. And He justifies us by our faith in Him. And then He sends His Spirit to sanctify us. All of this... We know because of the Scriptures. Because of the Old Testament. And then building, building upon the Old Testament because of the New Testament. 
verse 4. Here's what Paul does. He says, look how Jesus did it. Now look how the rest of Scripture does it. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. What was written is the Old Testament. It was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Hope in what? Hope in Christ. Hope in not just Christ's sacrifice that saves us for eternity, but Christ's sacrifice and His sending of the Spirit that changes us. To use the words from verse or from chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How are we transformed? The Word of God. The Word of God made manifest to us by the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, found in the pages of this book that we call the Bible. I don't change you. God's Word does. You don't change others. God's Word does. So Paul says, stop fighting. Stop fighting. Number one, because Christ's sacrifice is so much bigger than food and drink and what day we worship. So much bigger. And also, because everything that you're doing and you're quarreling is pretty much worthless. This is not how we change. This is not how they change. This is arrogance. This is foolishness. Instead, let us be quiet. rely on the scriptures for endurance and encouragement. In verse 5 he says, may, now he shifts it. He, he was explaining it. Now he's, now he's speaking it over us. May the God of endurance and all encourage, and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with, G, with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what is really very scary. The world will more likely hear our fighting than it will the truth of the word. Paul says, hey, listen, you need to be unified because it's when we are unified that that with one voice we glorify God and the Father of Jesus Christ. It's with one voice a unified voice. Unity doesn't mean that we agree on everything. Unity, unity rather means that we actually care enough to disagree and not fight. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This probably should be the most stinging thing that Paul says in this chapter in seven verses. I don't care if you have been a Christian for 30 seconds or 30 years. At one point, you were more foolish than you are now. If you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, and I do mean any length of time, you are closer to him now than you were before. 
And here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And I think back to when Christ first welcomed me. And I'm sure glad that he wasn't as judgmental as I am. And I, personally, I think that I'm not really that judgmental of a person. But there are some people that I think, oh, God clearly didn't. How dare I? Dare I say, how dare you? How dare us? For thinking anything less than being a welcoming and loving and patient Christ welcomed you into the church whenever you probably didn't know very much. How much more should we, who are in fact broken and weak, welcome those who walk the same line as us? Why? Not to please ourselves. Not to make ourselves feel good, right? Right? Paul says not not to please ourselves. Verse 1. Because it feels good to be at unity. It feels good. Right now, we've been at church for a little over six years. And we have not had a serious fight in this church. And I literally thank God every week that we have it. But you know what is the reality? We are all broken people. And just like every, listen now, good marriage, there is fighting. Because you're broken. And if you're not fighting, that means you're not talking. Because eventually, if you're talking to each other and you're broken people, you're going to disagree. And in every good church, eventually there's going to be some kind of tension. And I, I thank God that for six, a little over six years, we haven't had tension. Not, not big tension. But eventually we will. And we, as brothers and sisters in Christ... Have, a, have an opportunity to set a precedence now. To live not for our own pleasure and our own glory, but to live for God's and His alone. And when the opportunity arises, whenever we can be foolish and we can be weak and we can sully the name of Christ, we choose instead to glorify the name. Father, Lord in heaven, we we thank you that you have welcomed welcomed us into your arms because of the work of your son Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would not lord over any of our quote-unquote strength. Over anybody else. But instead, Lord, be so fixated and so attentive to who you are and to what you've called us to. That we would be able to bear with each other's weaknesses as you have borne with ours. That we would be able to, with one voice, because of the endurance and the encouragement of you, proclaim your glory to all the world. But it is only because and through the name of your Son, Jesus, who went to the cross freely for us that we pray.